Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. I am excited to jump into the second book of the virtual club. The book is called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Acho. It's broken down into three sections. The first section is called You and Me. The second section is Us and Them. And then the third section is We. So uh, for this first part, I'm going to go over section one, which is you and me. To get started, I want to read a quote that's kind of uh, the author's disclaimer as he starts the book. Here's a quote. I won't lie to you. We're only getting further in the weeds from here. We're going to talk about slavery a lot. We're going to talk about privilege and complicity and so on. But getting uncomfortable is the whole idea. Everything great is birthed through discomfort. Think about it. A mother suffers no small amount of trouble for nine months before enduring the mega pain of labor and birthing the world's next great hero genius, end quote. And he's right. You can't do anything meaningful without getting a little uncomfortable. And so with that being said, a little bit of Emmanuel Acho's background He shares that from the time I was nine or 10 years old, I knew I'd experience racism. It wasn't that overt call you the N word to your face racism. It was more subtle. Like, for example, the uncountable times some kid in elementary school or middle school or high school plopped down at my lunch table and, after hearing me recount some playground feat, said, You don't even talk like you're black, or You don't sound black. Or, you don't even dress like you're black. Or the ever-popular, you're like an Oreo, black on the outside, white on the inside, end quote. I shared in my review of post-traumatic slave syndrome how this is a, uh, especially that last part about being called an Oreo resonates with me. I face this as well, the the expectation of my non-melanated peers to somehow fit a stereotype of what being black was based on, I mean, their, most of their examples of would have been through pop culture and things like that. And the people who were saying these things kind of acted as if I was disappointing them by not living up to the stereotype of what they knew black to be. And I know that it has had an impact on me because I struggled to define my identity. And I feel like I've just now been able to kind of blossom in that part of my life uh, throughout my 20s. So that particular part kind of stood out to me. So the first section in this part of the book, the, the author goes over what implicit bias is, and he references a 2016 article uh, titled Whitened Resumes, Race and Self-Preservation in the Labor Market. 
professors from Harvard, Stanford, and the University of Toronto reported on a two-year study about the effect of people of color using whitewashed names on their resumes. Lamar J. Smith became L. James Smith, etc. I'll give you one wild guess what the researchers discovered. Yep, applicants with white-sounding names were more likely to be called back for an interview. And not just by a little bit. They were almost twice as likely to be called back. This is Exhibit A of Implicit Bias. When a company thinks of itself as an equal opportunity employer, or goes out of its way to say minorities are strongly encouraged to apply, they may be lying and not even realize it. Black applicants get the false confidence that it's A-OK to reveal their race on their resumes and then, boom, catch a biased rejection, while the pro-diversity company X wonders why they still have so few diverse employees. And he goes on to talk about how, quote, some of the most popular recent baby names for black boys and girls were Javante, Chiron, Tamika, and Chantrell. I'll be willing to bet these names wouldn't have fared well in the above study, and one might say it's just a callback for an interview. But think about all the things that can happen as a result of being half as likely to get a callback. That means longer periods of unemployment. More unemployment means a greater risk of homelessness. Think about what joblessness does to a person's esteem, to their mental health. Think about the fact that with no job, there's likely no health insurance or no good health insurance. And what about feeling like your name is the cause of your life's troubles? End quote. This was a a great example to kind of illustrate implicit bias because it's based in a, a research study and it doesn't necessarily imply that in the instances where the people didn't get a callback is in and of itself racist, but it's more so measuring the fact that there is bias on predominantly black name. And so another example of implicit bias that was shared was how uh, black people fare in the United States healthcare system. So, quote, a 2019 report published by the Center for American Progress found that black women across the income spectrum and from all walks of life are dying from preventable pregnancy-related complications at three to four times. I repeat, three to four times the rate of non-Hispanic white women. The death rate for black infants is twice that of infants born to non-Hispanic white mothers. Black women have long been thought capable of bearing more physical pain, have received less careful, attentive, thorough health care, and have failed to be treated with dignity by health care professionals. These factors create a chain of biological processes known as weathering, that undermines black women's physical and mental health. It is literally killing their babies. And a major reason for why it's happening is implicit bias. Don't get it twisted. Saying these disparities are due to bias isn't a way of saying they're due to racism. Again, unconscious prejudices can manifest as racist actions. That's the whole problem. But I think it's important to start here with the fact that you don't even have to know you're racist for the damage to be done, end quote. So we're talking about implicit bias. I gave the example of the study about 
black sounding names and how that fared for folks in the labor force. And so now we're talking about disparities in the health system. He said, don't get it twisted. Saying these disparities are due to bias isn't a way of saying they're due to racism. Doctors would do experiments on slave women without anesthesia because they were believed to be more able to bear pain. And these implicit biases are, like he said, literally killing people. A famous example is Serena Williams. When she was uh, giving birth, she was experiencing some complications and people didn't believe her. She almost died. So this is definitely uh, a big problem. So between uh, something simple like looking at someone's name and drawing conclusions based on that. I know for me personally, my name is John Zell. It's very unique. And depending on how someone comes across my name, one of two things is expected. People will look at it and be like, oh, well, he's black, right? Or another common thing that people might think is that my name is somehow French. And people will ask me, oh, what's the, what's the origin of that? The truth is my grandmother made it up as a like last minute kind of thing as I was being born. So it doesn't have any like meaning or uh, anything deeper than that. But the fact that I have a very unique name, I've seen my fair share of bias throughout my life because of that. Um, simply by the name, before I even show up or someone sees me, there is a lot of bias just because my name is out of the ordinary. It's not something simple like John or Jonathan. I like the call to action that Emmanuel uh, gives about conquering implicit bias. So he says, in order for us to conquer our implicit biases, we have to speak openly and honest about them. Uncomfortable conversation is all about addressing this kind of thinking airing it out. We can't let these ideas fester in silence. So, what's the game plan for reducing implicit biases? One way is to spend time with people in different social, racial, and ethnic groups. You can do things like join meetups, join a gym or a fitness class, take a class in something you're interested in, drop by a new desk at work, walk around your neighborhood, or even just sit down in one of those often empty bus or subway seats next to a black man and strike up a conversation. The more you reach out, the easier it gets, I promise, end quote. It starts with having conversations. It starts with recognizing that there's more to learn. And I'm a living example of this in that I am a black man. I'm challenging my to read as much as I can and as I kind of search for books and things like that, I really want to kind of get an eclectic look at different experiences of people of color. It, it's important to have conversations and to check our implicit biases because that's the only way that we advance. Um, and so the next chapter um, kind of addresses the the obvious, which is white privilege. And I like the the story that's given to kind of paint the picture of what white privilege is, because believe it or not, um, I hear very frequently uh, folks say that there's no such thing. I'm a therapist. I've had clients tell me 
that the idea of white privilege or male privilege is exaggerated and it hurts. It hurts to hear, but it's also not true. It, it, it's definitely a thing. So here's a quote. Say you and I are in a race and the starting line official held me back for the first 200 meters, giving you a 200 meter head start. If that were to happen, the only way to level out the race would be to either stop you from running or to put me on a bike to catch up to you. This is white privilege in a nutshell. What we've done in America is said, okay, Emmanuel, you're free to run. Meanwhile, you've acted as if it's been a fair race, when in all honesty, black people were held back for hundreds of years and still are. And he goes on to say, and white privilege is about the word white, not rich. It's having an advantage built into your life. It's not saying your life hasn't been hard. It's saying your skin color hasn't contributed to the difficulty in your life. End quote. I like that he distinguishes between white privilege and socioeconomic privilege. So when someone says white privilege, it sometimes gets uh, muddied with the somehow expectation that all white people are well off just because they're white. And that's not the case. When we say white privilege, like he said, he's saying there are privileges enjoyed by a person of a majority, which in the United States is Caucasian, that a person of color who's not in that majority does not have. So there are advantages. So the advice that he gives, quote, the next time someone calls you on it, don't disengage from the moment or as we used to say, don't take your ball and go home. Instead, focus on what a person of color might be feeling. Learn when it is time to listen intently. When is the time to be a megaphone for the voices of black people? And when is the time to step in and speak up? If white people are the problem, white people must also be part of the solution. I believe that. End quote. To kind of start the topic on cultural appropriation, quote, let me put it to you like this. When I was in college, my professors warned us about plagiarism, using someone else's words or ideas without attributing them. Plagiarism was not only considered wrong, it was an offense that could get you in serious trouble, up to getting kicked out of school. Borrowing influences from black culture is not an issue in and of itself. The problem becomes when you borrow from a culture without citing the sources and or knowing the history. As long as you do both of these things, you should be fine in most cases. Keyword, most. And then he goes on to define cultural appropriation. Quote, cultural appropriation happens when members of a dominant group in the United States, white people, take elements from the culture of a people who are disempowered. It's problematic for a number of reasons. For one, it trivializes historic oppression. It also lets people show love for a culture while still remaining prejudiced towards the people of the culture and lets the privileged people profit from the labor of oppressed people. On top of that, it can perpetuate racist stereotypes. And so he goes on to say, think of how long black people have been demeaned in America. 
Think of how long their speech, their bodies, their skin color, their culture has been seen as lesser than. Now imagine how hurtful it would be to have those same characteristics taken on by white people and celebrated as their own, end quote. One example that comes to mind for me recently is recently I came across an Instagram post Uh, And I don't follow Justin Bieber on Instagram, but it came to my attention that he was kind of under fire because he posted a picture of himself with dreadlocks. And for those who don't know, Justin Bieber is white and uh, dreadlocks are a uniquely black hairstyle. And when I saw that kind of taking the context that Emmanuel kind of gives is that you're if, if you're taking something from another source and not giving credit or showing understanding of what you're doing, it's hurtful. It It is not okay. Again, I don't follow Justin Bieber. I'm not a fan of his music. I don't know the guy. But when I saw the image, it wasn't a homage to black hair or anything like that. And in my opinion, it was provocative because that wasn't the first time he had done dreadlocks. And he got a lot of publicity and attention from it the first time. Never go in the comments on Instagram. It is where hope and humanity goes to die. But I went in the comments because... I was just trying to see, like, are people co-signing this? Are they, what are people thinking about this? Because here I am, a black person who has decided to do this hairstyle to connect with my culture. And I see this affluent white person who's taking something that is unique to black culture for themselves. And it looks to me... And again, I don't know the guy, but it looks to me like a publicity stunt. He knows that it's going to anger some people. He knows that it's provocative. And to my knowledge, there was no credit or awareness or anything to where the source of this was from. And on top of that, years ago, Justin Bieber has been caught on tape using the N-word casually. And I think when you combine that sort of history with something as sacred to Black people as our hair, that's a really big problem. I remember texting one of my friends when I saw this, and I was just so angry. And it wasn't, I didn't, go and, you know, leave a comment or anything like that, because that, that seems to be the response that it was going for. And as I was like, reading through the section on cultural appropriation, I was like talking with my wife about it. And she informed me that she went to Justin Bieber's Instagram and looked and he made a big to do about shaving his hair off. Because as he was posting all these pictures and stuff like that, he was getting a lot of you know, hateful comments. And I'm not saying that being hateful to someone on the internet is okay, even if they're doing something that's very wrong and that I don't agree with. 
It just doesn't sit right with me. It feels like it's an attention seeking kind of stunt. And that's kind of what Acho was talking about. He said, imagine you're you're part of a group of people who've been disenfranchised, been critiqued on everything, literally killed for existing. And then all of a sudden, people are profiting and taking credit for something that is uniquely you. It doesn't sit right. It feels extremely hurtful. And again, that man doesn't know me and I don't know him, but he has a a platform and influence. And when someone is so reckless with it like that, it, I'm going to leave that where it is. I can't even articulate my thoughts at this point. So he goes on to say, quote, the, the goal of sounding the alarm about cultural appropriation is not to stop anyone, white people included, from celebrating black culture. The key is to celebrate it as black culture, not to take it as your own, end quote. And I'll leave it at that. So this chapter on the N-word, it was actually triggered by a question that was sent to the author. And I'm going to read this question because when I first read it, I was sitting next to my wife and I literally got so angry. I had to like stand up and like do a lap around the living room because of just the frustration. So the question that was sent in to Emmanuel uh, Acho was, quote, why do I have to bleep myself when I'm singing in my car to a black authored song? Why can't I quote the lyrics or even sing the music that the Black artists themselves sell in the public domain? That was the question. I've heard this before. I've had peers who think it's okay to use the word. I'll include links to two essays that I recently wrote uh, related to the N-word based on personal experiences that I've had. And I appreciate Emmanuel Acho's response to this question, which was a whole chapter, he puts it very well when he says, quote, imagine the worst insult you've ever received. Now imagine that when you heard those words, what you also heard was that you're second class forever, that you don't deserve any of this American dream. Imagine what you heard was you're an animal. Imagine you heard you're stupid. You're a slave. My people owned your people, and you were better off when they did. Imagine that you heard you won't amount to anything, boy, and the nothing you get is exactly what you deserve. If you can picture one word communicating all of that, then you'll have some sense of what hearing the N-word does to me and any other Black person in America. End quote. He put it in a very concise way, because I don't think I would be able to articulate that in so few words. So I'm going to leave that where it is. We've just, I've just kind of finished reviewing part one of three parts. I'm excited to see what the chapters, Us and Them, and then the final section, We, is all about. So thank you for listening, and thank you for joining me as I kind of explore these books this summer. So take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast 
right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.